Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to naturalism, conservation, and stewardship. I'm Dylan Banyasco, a landscape designer and outdoorsman from Central Texas. I'm learning from individuals and organizations that are working to improve our relationship with land. Subjects may range from regenerative agriculture to ethical hunting and wildlife management. Please subscribe on your preferred app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. Matt Brown is the Managing Director of Global Conservation at the Nature Conservancy, or TNC, and oversees their conservation initiatives in 59 countries across the globe. Prior to his current position, Matt worked with TNC Africa for 14 years. He is a dedicated conservationist with nearly 30 years of experience from the grassroots level to the global scope. Matt has lived and worked on the ground in West and East Africa, including serving as Peace Corps forestry volunteer in northern Ghana and living in Tanzania for eight years. We spoke about the Nature Conservancy's work around the globe and some of the economic solutions they're able to apply to environmental problems, from carbon markets to debt conversion models. We also delved into the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on ecotourism and the outcomes of the recent COP26 UN Climate Change Conference. To see some more of the work the Nature Conservancy is involved in or to offer your support, simply go to nature.org. Thank you for listening. All right, I'm here with my guest, Matt Brown. Matt, thanks for joining. Thanks, Dylan. Great to be with you today. Yeah, likewise. I know uh, your schedule is jam-packed, especially with this new promotion here. Uh, Previously, you were just managing Africa. So uh, is it fair to say that your job just got a little bit uh, more difficult recently? Definitely got busier, yes. (laughs) (laughs) About seven times busier? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, cool, man. Let's get into it. I, uh, I'm so fascinated at your work and, and very supportive of the Nature Conservancy and everything you guys do. For, uh, for the audience who some people may be familiar and some maybe not so much, could you introduce the Nature Conservancy and a little bit about its history and its, uh, its goals? Yeah, Absolutely. Um, So the Nature Conservancy is a global conservation organization. Uh, We work in 72 countries around the world. Our mission is to protect the lands and waters upon which all life depends. And um, we do that through a series of different strategies globally. Um, We started in the United States. We work in all 50 states. Um, And I really talk about TNC Dillon as being a science-based organization. We have 400 scientists on staff. We are also a big convener, meaning we can pull in multiple partners, a local land trust or a local uh, community organization. And we work with some of the large um, donors and large uh, other conservation and healthcare partners as well. And then finally, we're kind of known for having uh, creative financial solutions. We firmly believe in permanence and how we like to protect fresh water, protect ocean, protect land, and address climate change with solutions that are financially durable. And we can talk about some of those today. But but TNC is about 70 years old. Um, and as I said, we have 400 scientists, about 4,500 staff um, working, working globally today. Wow. Yeah, massive organization. I mean, one of the things that I love about y'all's work is that financial understanding and the sort of systems thinking and an, an integrated approach to conservation, which um, I, I've spoken to the folks at uh, PERC, Property Environment Research Center in um, Bozeman as well. I think they kind of have a similar approach to some of these issues, like looking at free market, you know, solutions. How do we how do we incentivize conservation and, um, you know, get the government out of the way, which I don't want to mischaracterize your work, but some of the things that you guys do uh sort of seem seem similar yeah and a lot of the you know how we influence value chains and how people are are looking for fsc uh forest you know certified uh timber or uh fish that comes from well-managed fisheries um so if we can affect the supply chain you know walmart looking to green its supply chain for example and have carbon emission um goals and targets set so looking at that 
economic base and some of the higher leverage um, aspects globally in terms of markets. Um, you know, the, we're seeing deforestation in the Amazon uh, because of global food markets and drivers. So how do we begin to influence those? Those are some of the, the real high leverage things that we do. And then, you know, we do a lot of work um, with farmers and ranchers um, in all of our lands in the U.S., both private lands, public lands, um, and in Africa and other, other parts of the world, we do a lot of work on community lands also. So we're, we have a lot of tools. Uh, we work on fisheries. We work on monitoring and evaluation. We work on government policy. Um, so yeah, it is a big organization, Dylan. And, and you know, the benefit of that is that we, we have a big toolbox and we can bring the right tool for the right job at the right time. And we try and really act as a local land trust uh, organization and a trusted advisor locally, um, while also having the ability to influence national governments on policy, on climate, on you know any kind of uh, change that we think is, is useful. Um, so a lot of what we're focused on now is, is how do we address climate change? How do we help these, these countries um, become more carbon neutral and help them think about more renewable energy streams um, in line with some of the stuff that came out of COP26 last week and um, and also do that in a way that supports local communities, indigenous peoples, um, and creates incentives for everybody to kind of come along with that. Yeah, that multi-level approach seems incredibly effective. It also seems like a really tall order in terms of uh, your day-to-day operations. I can't imagine uh, all the different sort of things that you've got your hands in. What uh, what prepared you for this job? I know that you were you know you've been involved with TNC for a long time, but what's your your background? What's your academic and personal background that led you here? Yeah, Dylan, I got a, a biology degree as an undergraduate. Um, then I worked for the U.S. Peace Corps in uh, West Africa, running a tree nursery uh, for two years, um, and then I kind of explored Africa on a bicycle actually for about ten months. Really. Um, which was a fantastic year of my life. And then I went to grad school uh, for water, water got a master's degree in water resource management. Um, then with, I worked for a private consulting firm for 10 years and then I've been with TNC about 14, almost, yeah, a little over 14 years now. So you were drawn to Africa pretty early in your life, it sounds like. Tell me about that bike ride. Is that a sort of motor, motorcycle diaries kind of thing? What was that about? Yeah, but it was a pedal bike. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, it was a great, it was a great time of my life. I was, uh, how old was I? I was 20, uh, 21 years old, 22 years old. Um, and, um, yeah, just traveled all the back roads of Africa. We, we started in Uganda, went through Kenya, Tanzania, uh, Malawi, Mozambique, Zambia, Zimbabwe, uh, great, great trip. And, uh, just saw a lot of a lot of communities, you know, and and you'd pedal in, and kids would come running up and want to explore your bike and why you were there, and ask you a hundred questions. Um, so just a, it's a nice pace to see to see an area, to see the world. So um, yeah, it was a, it was a great trip. That's incredible. Yeah, and then you lived in Africa for some time, right? While you were with the Nature Conservancy, or before? With with the Nature Conservancy, I lived in northern Tanzania, uh, a town called Arusha for eight years uh, with my wife and three children. And we were growing the Nature Conservancy's program then. Um, our first office was in Arusha, Tanzania. Um, and now we have offices in uh, eight countries, um, about 115 staff um, in Kenya, Tanzania, Zambia, South Africa, Angola, Botswana, Gabon, um, kind of all over East and Southern Africa. Um, Part of part of Central Africa, so it's been fun to really grow that grow the program and figure out how to how to have an impact and how to understand the local issues. And as you know, Dylan, from everywhere you work, even though the Nature Conservancy has one mission statement, we're all trying to save the Earth. We have a set of goals that we're trying to do globally, but we've got to make our work relevant at the local level. And so we do spend a lot of time hiring local people, working with local conservation organizations, local partners, really listening, really learning. Um, really trying to figure out the system and then how we can, you know, have impact into into that place. Um, that seems so like one of the most imperative parts, especially when you're dealing with a culture and a people that, you know, may have very different values and, and different ways of doing business. 
you know? Yeah. I mean, one thing I always talked about, whether you're, you know, in the, in the Western U S or whether you're in Argentina or whether you're in Tanzania, conservation has to be valuable to local people. You know, what does that mean? Well, it has to bring relevance. It has to bring benefit. That could be jobs. That could be payment. That could be more food security, um, could be a number of things, but, but, uh, but, you know, conservation to, for it to work and for it to persist, um, it has to work. And so Dylan, we spend a lot of time on a kind of a three, generally a three-step approach to a lot of our, our work, um, particularly with, with local communities. Um, and that's first to help get them ownership of the, of the resource, ownership of the land or ownership of the fishery through local policy. Second is to make sure they have the right uh, knowledge uh, to manage. And often that's the science and the monitoring. And then third, that there's an improved benefit, which is not always monetary. Maybe it's access to more grass uh, for a, a grazing community. Um, but there's increased benefit from a resource that they now own and that they are managing themselves. And so that's a really nice sort of three-step way to think about some of this work. And if we do that right, there's a you know good inclusion and great support. And it's actually the local community that's deciding how they want to manage um, and what they what they care about. And so our role really is is almost one of just facilitating a lot of that and helping to bring um, some funding and some technical capacity to to achieve that process. A couple of things there. Um, I do want to get into some of the projects that you've kind of implemented that approach on and, and some of your successes and, and accomplishments in Africa. But I'm wondering what it was like those eight years in Tanzania, uh, how that kind of changed your perspective on working with those people and, and what that was like for you and your family. That was a great experience, Dylan. Um, I mean, personally, it was a great experience for our family. It was a great experience. Um, you know, like I think any sort of full immersion um, in a different culture, a different part of the world that makes you appreciative for, you know, what you have and the education you've had and the medical uh, access you've had um, in your life. Um, it also makes you really appreciate local perspective and how people are extremely dependent on their land, on their rainfall and understanding their situations really carefully. There's not as much safety net as we have in the rest of the world. Um, and, um, and so, yeah, I think it just gives you a really good perspective on, on what motivates people locally and therefore how to, how to try and help support a more sustainable uh, livelihood or behavior change moving forward. But it's hard to do that if you don't really understand exactly what motivates uh, people. So, Yeah, I've heard it from a few people uh, more on the agri agricultural side of things that I've spoken to about sort of the vulnerability of living close to the land like that, especially when um, when cycles are being disrupted, when maybe you're in long cycles of drought, things like that. So I can imagine that um, it can be difficult to to value conservation when people are worried about feeding themselves. And um, yeah. I want to get into some of the some of the projects you mentioned this uh, sort of communal structure of grassland management. Uh, I don't know what you called it. Can you explain that a little bit further? Yeah. And actually um, I can describe that. And then at some point I can tell you a quick story about um, how this has actually helped people and, and sort of back to your point about um, rainfall patterns changing or people living close to the edge and not having much buffer. Yeah. Um, so in, in, a, in a lot of countries around the world, um, and a bit different than the, than, the, than the United States, there's a large amount of land that is communally used and communally managed. Um, and in the country of Tanzania, there is private land, there is government land, so parks, forests, nature reserves, and then there is uh, what they call village land, which is effectively community land. And so these are lands... Um, let's take Northern Tanzania, which is largely pastoral or, or livestock grazing. So these are grasslands where individuals don't own their own pastures. Like they're not fence pastures like you would see in, in um, Colorado or Kansas in, in the United States. They're, they're big open unfenced, what we call open access resources. Um, and so there is policy through the Village Land Act in Tanzania that a community can actually own its land if they go through a number of steps and get approval from the, the national government, from the Ministry of Lands. Um, and one of the things we're trying to do on those lands is to help ensure 
that those grasslands are not overgrazed and that they're actually well managed so that there is plenty of grass for generations to come. As population grows, as the climate changes, you know, it's obvious that the pressure is more intense and maybe those grasslands, um, there's more pressure on them and maybe they're less resilient than they, than they used to be. Um, and so we're trying to set up um, some rotational grazing. And really the key thing is to allow the grasslands to have enough rest. If you own private land, that's pretty easy because you can say, hey, we're not grazing here right now. But if it's an open pest, you know, what we call commute or refer to as communal land, it's graze less. It just means that you, Dylan, can graze more. Um, if you, yeah. Dylan, graze less, it means that I can graze more. And so it's, it's the sort of tragedy to commons. And so that's one of the things we're trying to address with our work. Yeah, that's the exact phrase that came to mind when you started describing this, um, the tragedy of the commons in terms of overuse in, in those shared resources. So when you're trying to set up something like rotational grazing, um, is that a policy or is it just educating the local people? How do you, um, I don't want to say enforce, but how do you encourage that kind of thing? So they, they, the community, define their own bylaws, if you will. They define you know, what is bad grazing. Um, so this would be a good time just to tell you this quick story, which I think these points, but, but effectively the community defines those and then they themselves self-enforce. Um, and our role is to help facilitate that. So, um, in, in Northern Tanzania, then just, uh, about 40, 50 kilometers west of the town of Arusha, Tanzania, um, we, the nature conservancy have been working with some great partners, um, uh, local communities, uh, organizations a community resources team, the Honey Guide Foundation, um, and several others. And one of the areas we've been working in, um, in that wildlife management area, they've set up a core conservation zone where there are some lodges, um, some tented camps. And basically when the visitors come from England or, or the U.S., they don't really want to see a lot of cattle. They want to see wildlife. And so the communities have agreed to move their cattle out of those areas. Um, which is a little bit of the age old sort of, you know, fortress conservation. So it's, it's wildlife mm -hmm. rather than people, but here's, what's really interesting. Um, they've done that because the, the value per unit of land is greater from high end ecotourism. And it's not everywhere. It's the small part than, you know, sort of continual livestock grazing. But what's interesting is when the rains didn't come one year and it got really dry, and there was no grass anywhere else, the communities around this wildlife management area approached the board of the wildlife management area, which had representation from their villages anyway. And they asked if they could bring their cattle in because otherwise they were facing the reality that their cattle may die because they couldn't find grass anywhere mm. else. And so the board deliberated and agreed with the condition that when the rains do first come, people have to move their cattle back out of this conservation area so that they're not there forever. And that this was a, you know, not a, not a, a not a recurring and a, a persistent thing, but it was a one-time benefit because of the severity of, of the grass condition, because the rains were significantly delayed. So people grazed for about, I think it was about six, seven weeks. And the minute the rains came, literally like the second day the rains came, all of the cattle were gone. They were back out of that area. And they respected it. Why did they respect it? Well, because the local community saw the benefit from tourism. Family members had jobs either as as rangers or as guides or, you know, working in the lodges themselves. Um, but most importantly, this land then can provide benefit to community, benefit to cattle. And when the local people see and respect all that, it enables it to be actually really well managed for elephant, for hyena, for lion, you know, for those wildlife. About 60%, Dylan, of of the wildlife in East Africa either live or disperse out of the national parks. Wow. And so the national parks are critical, but they're not everything. We actually need these community areas outside of the parks, both for movement corridors, but also just for dispersal, either daily or seasonal dispersal areas. Um, so finding this balance where communities appreciate conservation, they see value from it, but then they are also use, you know, able to have have some use of those areas um, during certain times is is a really nice kind of balance that we think is what the future is all about. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. When was that uh, drought that you're referring to? Oh, I'd have to look back in my 
<laughs> my memory book a little bit here, Dylan, but it was probably around uh, 20, 2017, I think. Okay, recently. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned um, the value, you know, the, the employment and the value of tourism, especially sort of high-end tourism, which I assume you're referring to safaris and um, and big game yeah. hunters and things like that. And I know I saw an article from you um, probably, it must have been mid-last year, about the effect of the pandemic and the travel shutdowns on some of these communities. What has developed, um, you know, with, with countries opening back up and things, how are things looking in, in those landscapes where they really depend on tourism money? Well, it's been a really tough two years, Dylan. Yeah. Um, you know, the good news is, is that people are starting to return. Some of the travel bans have been lifted. Um, there's a, a fair amount of domestic tourism in South Africa, a little bit in Tanzania, um, certainly in Kenya. But it's the foreign arrival um, visitors that, that really have the higher prices and, and create more, you know, more revenue locally. Um, so it's been tough, right? And some of these lodges closed um, all operators, tourism operators, um, either either consumptive hunting or photographic. Um, they did their best to keep staff employed. Um, in some countries, governments actually provided loans. Um, we, the Nature Conservancy, actually did a big, um, what we call the crisis fundraise. We, we raised um, some really good money and were able to keep about 1,800 rangers employed in these conservation areas, private, Wow. and community. Um, and what we did is we asked the question to a lot of these areas, what were you expecting or hoping or planning, actually planning to get from tourism? What kind of revenue were you planning to get from tourism, say, in 2020, that by March 15th, 2020, all tourism had dried up, like nobody was coming, yeah. all, all bookings just ground to a halt. And as we know, for about 18 months, it was that way. And so we tried to fill that gap by providing some some really band-aid grant money, really with the express purpose of keeping um, the the wildlife rangers um, and some of the community efforts going, um, so that now as tourism is starting to pick up again, Dylan, um, there wouldn't be a huge vacuum and there wouldn't be a whole lot of poaching um, during that time. Yeah, that's awesome that you guys did that. I have seen a few people mentioning that poaching seems to have been on the rise during that period. And um, generally, all citing similar concerns that um, the folks who, you know, it's often the poachers who end up becoming rangers. It's just a matter of survival. They they need people, uh, or you know, they need employment one way or another. They need income, and when it dries up from tourism dollars, they may have to turn to something like poaching. So it's uh, it's great to hear that you guys were able to support that many people and keep them in jobs. Yeah, and you know, it's not just direct poaching for like uh, ivory or, or you know elephant tusk or or rhino horn. There's a lot of we saw a lot of uh, of what we call bushmeat poaching as well. So you know, giraffe in northern Kenya, giraffe meat was seen in the market in northern Kenya, which during normal years you'd never would see that. Um, a lot of charcoaling happened. A lot of habitat degradation happened. Um, so there was some direct killing um, for trophies, but but also just a myriad of other you know, sort of uh, practices that frankly, the what tourism has done is actually shown a different value of that wildlife. And there's a lot of sayings in Africa, you know, hashtag an elephant is worth more alive than dead. Uh, because people can come for 70 years lifespan of an elephant and take, take pictures. And that's great jobs and great revenues and great benefit that has a, a dividend payment every year. Um, and so people, people have local communities really have seen the benefit. Um, and so, yeah, when the tourism dried up, the hardest thing was there was no one knew it was coming. So there was no plan. There was no ability to have any financial buffer. Right. Um, and so that's one thing we've learned is that we really need to diversify revenue streams to tourism. Um, so it can't just be, it can't just be, you know, sport hunting, fishing, um, photographic tourism it's it's we're looking now at carbon we're looking at trust funds we're looking at multiple mechanisms that can help support these areas in the long term what you really want like any portfolio any financial advisor will tell you you want diversification well we want diversification of funding for these critical wildlife reserves be them government be them private or be them community in the long run yeah yeah it always comes back to resiliency right and 
Absolutely. And nature establishes resiliency through diversity. And um, we've got to do the same thing economically. You know, so what, what are the, some of the things you mentioned a few programs there um, in terms of establishing other sources of revenue? Let's say another pandemic comes around or, or another variant or what have you next year. Do you feel like these communities will be better prepared now with new sources of revenue and will not be so vulnerable? Uh, that is the intention, but it, some of these things take longer than just a year or two to get put in place. Sure. Um, but yes, that that is the intention. I mean, one of the things that's really interesting, I don't know if we want to go there right now, Dylan, but you know, the the carbon markets that are that are expanding and the fact that yeah climate change is really kind of a dinner table conversation now, um, no matter where you sit in the world. And so there are a lot of corporates, say, in London um, or in New York, who are um, interested in, in in a voluntary market to try and offset um, and to do their part, offset their emissions and or do their part to help protect forests, to help protect grasslands um, and or to help remove carbon from the atmosphere. And so you know, we've done a we've done a lot of avoided deforestation projects in Tanzania with a great partner of ours called Carbon Tanzania. Um, we've done some work in in um, northern Kenya around soil carbon, um, but these carbon credits bring revenue to the local communities, and it's a it's another way, an alternative way uh, to help keep these areas financed, um, Dylan. And so, yes, like those carbon markets don't really care whether people can get on airplanes or not, right? They don't yeah. really care if there's a global pandemic. And the idea is that each one of these carbon projects actually has a 20-year lifespan. And we don't know yet, but a lot of those will probably just get extended for another 20 years. So there are these payments that come every year for 20 years if if the forest remains standing, you know, if the permanence or the impact is is there. So that is a very strong alternative um, to a somewhat spiky tourism model. We, we know that tourism throughout the year is spiky anyway. You know, there's a peak season in the in the U.S. summertime, um, July, August, September, even in October, um, because that's a good dry period. We see a lot of wildlife. And okay. then again, over the December holidays. Um, but you can have really low tourism numbers um, throughout the rainy season, for example. So it's a little bit lumpy anyway, whereas a carbon payment could be the same every year. Um, and so, yeah, we're, we're looking for new models for sure. It's really exciting, actually. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I've heard of similar programs, sort of non-use kind of programs in the U.S. Um, you know, people, farmers being paid to leave water in the stream, for example, and reduce their irrigation and, and not use up all their water rights. And that kind of sounds like a similar program. I'm wondering, though, what it's like implementing something like that, these carbon markets in, a de in more de developing countries as opposed to, you know, doing it domestically here. Do you think there are major differences? Well, um, there's something block that, that we're all trying to figure out in, in the U.S. and in any other country around the world is how do we account for these projects at a national level so that we're not double counting or underappreciating, I suppose, uh, the impact that, that we're having. And so that's referred to as jurisdictional carbon, but um, there's a lot of thinking now about how do we actually account for um, how much emissions are happening within a country um, or in the US it might be within a state. Um, and then how do we actually measure that holistically across if you have three projects say in a state, how do we make sure that there's that they're not double counting and that they're um, working together? And so that that is challenging. It's challenging everywhere. Um, is it more challenging in some other countries? Yeah, there are countries around the world where having a national carbon accounting framework is a is a is a hard task to pull off um, because of funding, because of capacity, because of the science, because of the data. Um, but that's really where this is going, Dylan. Is is we're gonna we're gonna see more governments thinking about how actually they can be clear on the carbon that's that exists within their country, how these different projects contribute to that. And then the question is, well, should the government get some sort of tax on some of that carbon, or should all of it go right to the community? You know, or most likely, is there a cost share there? Um, and that's no different than wildlife. I mean, a lot of these countries in Africa, um, the, the governments themselves actually own all the wildlife. And then there is a devolved right to, to community um, to um, retain revenue from 
from those wildlife. Mm. Um, so carbon could just be another form of that. So yeah, it's new and we're trying to work all that out and it, it definitely takes time, but it seems like it's where the world is going. And it seems like um, it's a good way to help ensure that the critical nature, the critical biodiversity and the critical carbon um, has, has a value on it. Yeah. Yeah. You got me thinking about, you know, other landscapes that rely on, their natural resources for uh, for ecotourism. Last year, I was in Costa Rica, and you know, a huge portion of their economy—I'm not sure how much—but you know, revolves on sort of ecotourism. Yeah. And um, yeah, I'm just kind of I'm thinking about the vulnerability there, that kind of like we talked about earlier. But then some of the other mechanisms for um, you know establishing that resiliency. I saw that you guys were working on um, some debt conversion kind of models. Can you explain that to me a little bit? I know I saw some work in Belize, it looked like, that was working on that kind of debt conversion for conservation incentives. Yeah, no, it's really exciting and really interesting, um, Dylan. So, yes, you're right. So Costa Rica um, has made a really good commitment to – to conservation. And one of the things that many partners, TNC included, help, helped with was to create a what we call the debt for nature swap, where some U.S. Um, debt to Costa Rica was forgiven in exchange for them um, agreeing to commit a large percentage of the country to conservation. And then we built a trust fund that helps to sustainably fund those areas year after year. So the, the revenue from tourism is a key part of it. It's the majority of the revenue. But then there's a trust fund that can help to fill gaps during down years and or can help to you know, top up the needs um, on an annual basis to make sure that those areas are, are well managed. Mm. Um, in, on, in the, so that was land. In the ocean space, We've done two really interesting um, debt conversions or debt restructures, um, one in the Seychelles and then one in Belize more recently. Okay. Um, and the way that both of these worked is pretty similar, um, where we, the Nature Conservancy, went in and, and worked with um, some debt advisors and worked with the government, with the Ministry of Finance, and we were able to take a portion of their foreign debt and restructure it and get a lower interest rate on it and then in, in some case, in both cases, actually, we brought some philanthropy to the table. Um, and so the, the reduced interest rate, it's, it's effectively like doing a refinance on your home, Dylan, um, with a lower interest rate. And so the savings then get plowed into a trust fund. And in the Belize case, we're able to capitalize a $180 million trust over a 20-year period. And the dividends from that then go to help support the government's commitment to 30% of their ocean now under marine management um, so, and that's good for their economy of tourism you know they have a blue economy there of, of tourism and fishing um, and what we've done is help the government to make sure that that those areas are well are going to be well uh, managed because they're well financed over time okay so let me let me walk through this i'm uh, my understanding yeah, sorry, of finance. It's, it's kind of complicated <laughs> well uh, you know this is not my area of expertise but it sounds fascinating so that $180 million essentially is the difference in the interest savings by refinancing that debt. Over a 20-year period, yes. Yeah. So there's savings that accrue over time, um, and that, that gets parts into a new trust fund that we've created. The trust fund then spins off, and that will be to will be ultimately capitalized, yes, at $180 million. Wow. And then um, how is that money allocated um, in so then there's an independent board on the trust that goes through, I'm not sure of the exact process in Belize actually, but there's a, there's a, there's a, there's criteria and a process annually to figure out where those funds are most needed. I'm sure there are some earmarks, maybe some toward research, some toward climate preparedness, maybe some toward community and women's groups, but they disperse money uh, through a process to um, drive improved marine conservation um, every year. And when they talk about when we, uh, you know, conserving a portion of their of their coast or of their ocean, what exactly does that mean in in that context? Is it preserving or you know? Um, so they're yeah, they're marine conservation areas that have um, that's thirty percent of their what they call their economic exclusive zone, their EEZ. So thirty percent of Belize's ocean is now under marine conservation, and that can be different uses, just like we have 
national forests, and then we have a wilderness area within a national forest, or we have a national park, um, or we have a wetland. So there, there, there are different designations in each country, Dylan, um, decides its own kind of protected area um, footprint and the allowable uses within those. Usually there already is protected area policy. And so the, the zoning that happens um, is decided. So here's another way to think about this in more simple terms. So what, 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 what we call this is an ocean protection strategy, and there's really three legs to the stool. One leg is the government commitment. The government's saying we're going to put 30% of our ocean into conservation management. Okay. The second leg of the stool is the sustainable finance. Um, and we often use debt restructure. We sometimes use some other grant making mechanisms, but usually there's a big, a big sovereign debt restructure that we use to get, to get big savings and therefore big money coming into the trust fund. But that's, that's the sustainable finance. And then the third leg of the stool, Dylan, is science. So it's marine zoning. Um, it's like a master plan for the ocean. So which areas, like there might be some cold water upwellings or some re really critical reefs mm -hmm. that are absolutely no-take national parks, marine national parks. There are other areas that might have some seasonal fishery use. Um, so each, each area can be managed a bit differently. But basically, there's a, a management plan for the whole ocean, whereas previously there wasn't one and there, there was no commitment to conservation. Now there's 30% of that ocean is now committed to conservation in multiple forms. Um, so it's pretty progressive. You know, we did this in, in the Seychelles, which has a huge ocean, 1.2 million, 1 million uh, square kilometers. And so um, 400,000 square kilometers or a third of that, 30%, size of Germany is now managed for, for conservation, wow. um, which is great for their blue economy, which is tourism and, and tuna, commercial tuna fishing. Yeah. So it really helps prepare them. It creates more resilience, um, creates a more durable uh, ocean and a more durable economy. Um, so it's really a win-win for government, for local community, and hopefully for the, for the world as well. Um, and we're trying to replicate this across a lot of countries. You know, oceans are, are woefully underprotected uh, globally. Um, so there's a big opportunity here to kind of take take finances at a national scale to help, you know, work with um, governments to to make strong commitments about protecting their ocean. Yeah, that was my next question is, is you know, where else could you apply that same kind of approach? Uh, basically, any country that has, uh, you know, that has has ocean. Front, has debt um, and oceans. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, um, there's a number of other places we're, we're looking at. We actually have a whole, a whole list of places. Um, right now we're, we're looking at some countries in Africa, like, uh, like Gabon, Kenya, we've got a number of countries on the list that we're scoping. There are some factors that have to line up Dylan. I mean, the debt has to be what we call serviceable. The debt has to be at a price that makes sense. There has to be good willingness from the government. Um, and then often, some of these countries, there's just not much data. So it could take a couple of years to even collect some of the basic data that we can then begin to make some, some recommendations about what it might look like. And if you're the government, you know, you might be a little hesitant because, you know, these conservation NGOs are suggesting that you commit 30% of your ocean to, to conservation, which um, can be a big leap if you're currently at like 1% or 2% protected. Yeah. And so we do try and spin the economic argument um, and we do a lot of economic analysis to try and make the case that if we can manage our fisheries through focusing on the habitat and on the, the fisheries management and the restrictions within those areas, then those fisheries can generate good recurring revenue year after year, year after year. No different than the way that we can manage cattle on a grassland. No different than you could do some sustainable consumptive use um, of life in certain lands. Um, and so areas sustainably and build resilience and have a continuous benefit stream at multiple levels well then i think we're winning yeah man this is so cool i love this kind of work have you uh <laughs> have you had the chance to visit these places oh yeah yeah, yeah. i've been really fortunate i've traveled all i was actually in belize in um, in june with my family um and it's an amazing country to travel to and um, incredible ocean fantastic forest there we're actually doing a big forest protection project there as well um yeah and i've been all over africa too so yeah i mean these these are these are great places as, as we all know and it's it's no different than where you live in the american west i mean there's some big big opportunities um for um 
for big, big connections. I, I think one of the things that we are all focused on, Dylan, and I'm sure you see this in your work and some of your other interviews as well, is, is connectivity. And as we're you know, threatened by uh, climate change um, it, and fires and other things that are exacerbated by a changing climate, the connectivity of our national parks, the ability for wildlife to move from area A to area B is something that we, we need to take more seriously and really focus on while we still have, have the opportunities. Um, and that's true on the African continent as well. Um, and so we are, we are you know, largely focused where, where elephants exist on using elephants as sort of the focal species to help determine what are the most important places. And so we've put collars, uh, GPS collars on a number of matriarchs. Mm. We track where they go. Um, and we look at, you can actually tell by their rate of travel, how secure they feel. So when an elephant is moving quickly, almost running through a landscape, it tells us that actually that area is not really that safe. And we need to um, think about doing better conservation management there. If it's an area that they use frequently, you know, seasonally for, for movement. Um, yeah. So connectivity, my, my point is here, connectivity is actually one of the things, Dylan, that I think we all, all of us conservationists need to spend more time focusing on. Climate change exacerbates and or threatens um, a lot of what is functioning today in terms of, of connections. You know, we're not able to protect every square inch or every, you know, square kilometer on earth, but we, we use science to prioritize which areas are most important for biodiversity and for carbon stores and for connectivity. Um, and so that's our job is to really help bring the science to earmark where are the right places. And then in those places, like I said a few minutes ago, we've got to make sure that they bring value um, at all levels, but particularly you know, with indigenous and local communities that they see the benefit of that so that they can be uh, well-managed and supported into the future. Definitely. I Speaking of the connectivity i love the maps of you know like uh recently i saw one of a mule deer that was collared and they got to yeah. watch her migration uh i think there's a documentary about it but uh it's just stunning to see how far these animals travel and what they're willing to do to get what they need and i think it gives us a you know a different understanding of uh of how they're using these landscapes when you can see on a map you know this deer covering just unreal I, I don't know exactly how far but multiple states you know like amazing it's so it's so stunning and uh yeah I'm, I'm totally with you the connectivity is something i think about a lot especially out in the west where it feels like you know every river valley is developed and and um it can be really hard for these migrations to happen yeah you know and elk and and things like that so yeah, I'm with you. That's a that's a tough problem to solve, especially in places that are already developed. Yeah, completely. Um, I, this is where I think partnerships are so important, Dylan. I mean, it's not always up to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife or the State Department of Natural Resources or the BLM or the Forest Service. Um, it's all these agencies have to work together. And guess what? Private landowners often are a huge part of the solution as well, where they've either put conservation easements on their land in the American West uh, and or they've taken fences down and they're partnering with um, our federal and state um, departments of natural resource and, and, and wildlife agencies so that elk can move across a patchwork of, of government and private lands. And that's, that's the spirit of partnership, the spirit of, you know, we do, we do want to be good stewards and caretakers of our mother earth. And we need to make sure that we're all doing the right thing, irregardless of, who actually has, has a title deed, right? Um, and so I'm a huge believer in those types of partnerships because I, th I think that's what it's all about if we want to make sure that that mule deer you mentioned can can roam across three states. Absolutely. Um, I do want to get into the COP26 and, and what that means for your work. Can you give, again, just kind of an overview of, of what that was and what came out of it? Yeah, sure. I will try. I was not there, um, but okay. um, COP26 was a great uh, convening. Uh, a colleague of mine referred to it as as the climate change trade show. Um, so a lot, a lot of governments, a lot of NGOs, a lot of private sector were there. Um, there were some really good funding commitments that were made, um, Dylan. Um, you know, billions of dollars committed to 
help advance conservation in various countries around the world, um, to help address the reduction of methane, which is one of the largest drivers of greenhouse gas impacts and, um, and ozone depletion. Um, uh, big commitments uh, to um, developing countries around the world to help encourage um, faster traction from them on how they begin to think about reducing their carbon emissions. Um, so overall, there was some really good good energy, um, and there were a number of you know commitments that are made. Um, it, it it was a little bit disappointing, and we didn't quite get as far on um, on. Uh, you know, everyone thought that we were, there was going to be a stronger push to 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 get away from coal as an energy source, for example. Yeah. And at the last minute, there was kind of a back off of that and said, let's try and reduce dependence on coal rather than absolutely phase out coal. And that there was some frustration around that. But, you know, there's next year and hopefully this did make some good progress. And, and a lot of people, I think, are trying to be optimistic and say, yeah, you know, we'll we'll push harder on it um, next year. So these things are hard because it's expensive for governments to actually think about completely decarbonizing or removing coal from their um, from their energy mix. Um, certainly, the COP26, Dylan, raised awareness and helped to draw attention to this environmental issue, which you know goes across national boundaries, obviously. And yeah, we feel like there could have been a little bit stronger commitments made. Um, but overall, you know, I think we're moving in the right direction. And as I referenced earlier, I, I, I definitely hear and feel that everyone's talking about, about climate change and wanting to do their part. It's hard, though, you know, and how do we find the right um, financial and, and lever to kind of pull, whether if you're a, a country or whether you're a business or so. Uh, but there are some great opportunities out there. And, and, um, and I do think COP26 did help um, on, on some strong financial commitments to help move this forward. Well said. Yeah, you know, I think you guys are are setting um, some really great examples in the kind of work that you're doing to show people, um, you know, that may be hesitant to make these kind of commitments, may be worried about the economic ramifications. I think it's the creative systems thinking that you guys are, are using that's, uh, you know, the only way past this, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, there are others doing some fantastic work as well. Um, I mean, again, I'm a huge believer in um, working in partnership, and and it's going to take all of us to to figure out a sustainable future. But you're right. You know, I think there's a lot of interesting things here, and it's you know, it's not necessarily about bullying a country to make a change. It's <laughs> it's it's helping a country and leading them with the right economics uh, where it makes more sense. And one of our big stories, Dylan, as the Nature Conservancy. And we've done a lot of this work in Nairobi, actually, around securing fresh water for the growing population of Nairobi, is that investing in nature has value. By investing in farmers, we can reduce the sediment. We can ensure there's more water flowing, cleaner and more water flowing into the tributaries that feed Nairobi's drinking water. That's a lot cheaper solution than putting in huge new hydro dams that has massive negative impacts to supply more water um, or storage dams, I mean. Um, and so investing in nature, be it an ocean um, through a debt restructure um, or through parks because of the value of ecotourism or into agricultural uh, watersheds for water, you know, nature has value and it's worth us investing in it. Um, yeah. Let's not take it for granted. Let's make sure we can seize these, these, these opportunities and let's figure out how to have payments for these ecological services that, are, that we all benefit from. Yeah, it, it reminds me of what's happening on the Lower Snake River right now in the U.S., you know, trying to remove these four hydroelectric dams, at, you know, and there, there are communities that are going to suffer in the short term for sure if that happens. But it's kind of the bottom line is like, do we value salmon? Do we value, mm -hmm. you know, them having a salmon run here? If so, which most of us do, then this is what it's going to take and we will compensate, you know, the people who are going to struggle from this. But, um, yeah, yeah, it's a tough I was on the uh, – I was really fortunate to be on the middle fork of the Snake River in the, the Frank Church Wilderness Area uh, two or three summers ago. And I was looking at the historic salmon run. Salmon used to run all the way up into that uh, – way up into the upper reaches of the middle fork. Yeah. And, um, and because of the dams today, they, 
don't. So, so yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting, um, and a real hopeful restoration project right there. What were you doing out there? Uh, we were recreating, we were floating, floating oh, the river. Beautiful. Yeah. We did an eight day trip. It's amazing. Nice. Yeah. Well, um, you know, this is great. I'm, I'm, You've got me thinking about twenty different things now, but uh, I know your time is limited. We got we got to get you on a trip to Africa, Dylan. Have you ever been? I've never been to Africa. You'd love it, man. You'd love it. Oh my God, I would I would relish the opportunity. Um, yeah, I you know I'm looking forward to um, an, another previous guest. The Modern Huntsman folks are getting ready to release their Africa issue, and I think that it's going to address some of the issues that we're talking about. So definitely encourage people to get a copy of that as well. Um, my final question is what are you most optimistic about in your new position with the nature conservancy? Um, it's a great question, Dylan. You know, I'm, I'm really optimistic about the, the belief around the world and all these countries that I'm beginning now to travel to. And with our teams on the ground and our partners on the ground, there's really strong commitment to help address climate change, to help create greater resilience and to help protect critical biodiversity um, than I feel like there's been in at least the last 20 years of my life, certainly in the last 14 and a half years in my career at the Nature Conservancy. I think unfortunately the, the COVID pandemic has made us all realize the importance of protecting critical nature um, and, and that we can't sort of take the world for, for granted anymore, um, coupled with the climate change impacts that we're all starting to see. So there's big appetite there from business, from community, from government. And Dylan, I'm excited about really finding the right creative solutions that do involve, you know, creative and sustainable finance um, to help make these solutions work with local communities and that have, have permanence and a, and a brighter future. So it's a lot about equity. Um, and a lot about how we transform the way that that these benefits are are used and shared by by local people. So there's a lot. I'm excited by that appetite and by that sort of growing willingness or that increased willingness, I should say. Um, and so it's 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 pretty fantastic that what what these opportunities are. At the same time, you know, it feels like it's too little, too late, and we got to get after it. Um, but I do feel um, that there's willingness, which is positive, um, and and receptive ears wherever we go. I'm glad to hear that. You know, sometimes I don't know if more and more people are concerned with these things or if it's just that I'm delving more into the world of conservation and so it's what my it's what my algorithm is showing me or what. Uh, yeah. But so I'm glad to hear that you're um, confirming that. Well, yeah. I, I'm really, you know, honored to speak with you. I think you're doing uh, amazing work and I look forward to continuing to support you guys. If other people want to offer support, what can they do? Uh, well, if you take a look at our website, Dylan, um, nature.org, um, again, we work in 72 countries around the world. Um, we do a lot of our work with philanthropic uh, funding. Um, so making a contribution would be fantastic. We also have ways where uh, volunteers can get engaged in a lot of our U.S. states um, and a lot of our countries around the world um, during various work days or, or um um, other efforts to, to help out. So you can find your local TNC Nature Conservancy chapter and explore what they have to offer. Um, but take a look at our website. There's a whole lot of materials on there. We, you can also become a member and get the magazine. Um, so there's several ways there. So I would encourage you to look at nature.org. When did you guys get that domain name? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> it's been a while. It's a good one, huh? Yeah, not bad. Uh, <laughs> cool. Well, uh, thank you, Matt. This is great. Um, and yeah, folks go to nature.org to support and see what these folks are doing all around the world. Hey Dylan, thanks for your, for your questions today. I love uh, the program and the way you're, you're thinking about this. So appreciate you. Likewise, man. Thanks for saying that. Take care, Matt. Um, hope to, hope to follow up with you at some point. Okay. Sounds good, Dylan. Talk soon.